salutations, friends. This is Mr. Venom welcoming you to the Crystal Lake gift shop. Our doors are open and we are coming to you for episode number three, where we are, of course, going over the Friday the 13th series episode by episode. Let me go ahead and introduce my manager, the store manager who does everything I need him to do. It is Mr. Mike Merriman. How the hell are you doing, Mike? Hey, what's up? We got our uh, Valentine's products out on the shelves for people to browse so hopefully uh they're not cursed yeah definitely definitely don't ignore the ugly cupid statues we'll get to that in a little bit oh yeah we have our first returning guest clerk to the to the shop uh she did such a great job last time and she works for minimum wage so why not invite her back for another night at the shop this is of course one of our favorites miss lacy lou how the hell you doing lacy I feel like you guys shot me with some Cupid love arrows. You brought me back. (laughs) You love us anyway, and you know it. I do. You don't need a (laughs) Cupid love arrow to get me on your guys' show. You know that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, folks, if all the Valentine's talk has not given it away yet, we are looking at episode three of the Friday the 13th series. This one is called Cupid's Quiver. As I said, episode three originally aired on October 12th, 1987. This one is directed by Adam Egoyan. Uh, and <laughs> Mr. Egoyan actually has a, a very odd distinction that I don't know of too many directors that actually have this. Mr. Egoyan has the distinction of not only being nominated for an Oscar for The Sweet Hereafter, he directed The Sweet Hereafter, I forget the year on that one, But along with his Oscar nomination, he has an AVN award. Yes, my friends, he won an award for one of his adult films that he made. Uh, I believe it was called Erotica. And for the life of me, I can't think of another director who's been nominated for an Oscar and won a porn award. So bravo, my friend. I actually did watch a couple of interviews with him, and he, he does find that to be kind of an odd distinction. But at the same time, he's really proud of his AVN award, and he's even more proud of his Oscar nomination. But, you know, we'll get to that in a little bit. I have a whole yeah, list of That might facts. be, like, I was going to say, that might be the uh, this example of, like, crossover success. Maybe not financially, but, like, accolades-wise. Yeah, like and an this Oscar, isn't a situation. Exactly. And this isn't a situation where this guy did porn early and then moved on to other stuff. No, he was doing porn while he was still doing, you know, episodes of the the Twilight Zone show from the 80s and Alfred Hitchcock Presents, also the reboot of that show. So, I mean, the guy was working in Hollywood and making porn. So, I I don't know. I I think I love this guy. Uh, I want (laughs) to work in Hollywood and make porn. Right? I mean, is that not the dream? My God, come on. Like sex and Well, yeah. Hollywood and San Fernando Valley are pretty close, so. There you go. All the coke that you get while doing porn, you'll be able to use while making regular movies to keep you awake. So, honestly, it's fucking perfect. (laughs) Especially with the two-hour plus three-hour runtimes every movie has now. Uh, Exactly. Though, I I, I have noticed a lot of our movies that we do on Fresh Cuts tend to be a little bit shorter. We tend to kind of gravitate towards those 90-minute and below movies. Not to say that we have any kind of aversion to two-hour horror films, but... It's definitely a lot easier when you can get in and out in 90 minutes and, you know, go go on about your day. But What is um, the longest runtime of a horror movie? Do you guys know? Ooh, all time? Yeah. like I, uh, I don't probably, probably Philosophy of a Knife. Uh, that clocks in at over seven hours. 
oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. And it's a really weird one because it's basically a readaptation of this unit of uh, Japanese scientists that worked during the uh, world, during World War Two. And they just did the most horrific shit under under the guise of science, you know, what, basically you giving people. Like giving people STDs to see how long they lived, uh, purposely giving soldiers frostbite to see how long they could survive. Like, so, and, and, and it just goes beyond that. I mean, and kids were involved, unfortunately. So, yeah, uh, I believe the name of it was Unit 713 or 413. God damn it. Just look it up. Look up the uh, Japanese torture division of World War II. You'll be able to find it. And anyway, Philosophy of a Knife is about that whole thing. And it's actually in two parts. Uh, that are each uh, about three and a half to four hours long. So, yeah, the total thing is about seven hours. So, good times. <laughs> and wow. it is a horrific movie. I would not recommend watching it unless you what? have a really strong stomach. What year did this come out? Ooh, that you got me on. I'd have to... Is it like, do you know what decade at least? <laughs> uh, I don't because it's shot in black and white and it's purposely made to look shitty. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, it, it basically looks like it was filmed during World War II, but... It, it's definitely like 70s or 80s, maybe, maybe even 90s. I'm not sure. So okay. I'm sure some eagle-eyed listener will look that up and uh, tell us in, in the chat somewhere. So, yeah. So, episode three, Cupid's Quiver. Our synopsis is as follows. Mickey, Ryan, and Jack must track down an evil statue that causes men to kill the women they love. Hmm. That's kind of an odd description, but we'll get into why I don't agree with that description. But uh, <laughs> let's just start out with general thoughts overall. Lacey, our guest, um, this is your second time on the show. What did you think of this episode, and how how do you think it compared to episode two, since you were with us for that one, too? Okay, so this is way more my speed. And I'm sure you probably assume so uh, while watching. You're probably like, all right, Lacey's probably <laughs> more apt to this than <laughs> Being at the fucking synagogue. Is that, did I say that right? Yeah, synagogue <laughs> uh, is good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this, this was way more my style. You had a frat fraternity party going on. Um, some costumes that were fun. Um, a crazy psychopath. I, I don't know. This, this one was just a lot more um, my speed. And it was holiday themed. So I love that. <laughs> Um, I, I, I thought I thought it was a great time. I really do. Um, I'll save uh, all the fun stuff for our discussion, but I, I really did have a good time with this. Yeah, kind of surprising that they aired a Valentine's episode or at least kind of a Valentine's themed episode in the middle of October. It, it is odd that they didn't save it for later in the season, but, you know, who knows? Yeah. Mike, jump in here. What would you think of Cupid's Quiver? Yeah, I, I would say the uh, the timing on it works out for us because if we look at the calendar, we're like almost getting into February. So if it releases like in a week or two, it'll be like just in time. But yeah, I had a fun time with this episode. I thought uh, the item was cool. Uh, obviously, when you see the title of the episode, Cupid's Quiver, you're going to assume it has something to do with like love or lust or, you know, making people fall in love with you. Um I will say this the guys in this episode for the most part most of the male characters give A24's men a run for their money cuz damn <laughs> there's some scumbag dudes in this that just don't give a shit <laughs> but yeah overall I, I, yeah I but th this one the running time it just kind of whipped by and I guess that's a um 
that's the strength of the episode, you know, if, if you're cruising right through the story. Not that they're super long anyway. They're, what, about 45 to 48 minutes with the commercials taken out. But still, like, by the time it was wrapping up, I was like, damn, like, this this went by quick. Uh, yeah, I, I'd be... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I love the title. <laughs> like, Quiver. Like, keep it... <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is the Quiver is what Archer's keep their bow the, the, excuse me their arrows in that that kind of tube that they wear on their back that's the quiver so i'm a little surprised that this one is called cupid's quiver because technically the the statue never goes to its quiver it, it always has an arrow loaded up but you know we'll get into that here in a little oh, bit i didn't know it was like a double entendre there like i just thought it was like a sexual reference especially from the guy who did porn so. oh hey that's valid i didn't is, read anything like that in my research but you never know is it ever like equated with a sexual term like he made uh, her quiver it could be, yeah. It could be, but I mean, maybe I'm thinking of, um, oh God, is it Ten Things I Hate About You with uh, Alice and Jenny, and she's writing that novel, and she's like his quivering membrane. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I, that's a that's a verb, though. Yeah, the quiver is a noun. Is uh, that's why definitely. I thought it was sexual. Thank you. I, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> Still, though, I can't imagine that you're going to see people quivering with. Uh, orgasm on a Friday the 13th episode, but you never know, I guess. It's not like there wasn't any sex in this episode. Oh, there's, but, uh, there's yeah. plenty of, like, I, I have <laughs> noticed some, not just this show, but, like, other kind of horror anthology shows of the era. Obviously, they can't show nudity, but they're not shy to show, or to uh, have the sounds of sex going on. Like, I was sitting there watching, I was like, damn, they're, like, letting this go on for like a little while like i don't know maybe now we we'd see that in shows but like there was that period in like the 90s and probably early 2000s where i'm like i don't know if they would allow like that much of the uh, mm-hmm. uh audio of sex going on what are, what are the sounds of sex you're referring to mike merriman I'm oh just... please don't emulate those oh just man you really caught me on a you really caught me on a sore throat night or i'd love to uh-huh. but, you know <laughs> Now, if you guys had asked me that question, you know I would have answered. Of course, which is why I won't ask. Or just go put the microphone up to Dan right now, and maybe he'll. uh, Snoring, quivering. All right, so uh, my general thoughts are I mean, pretty similar to Lacey and Mike. I mean, I, I did have a lot more fun with this episode. I feel like episode two, The Poison Pen, had a little bit more intricacy to it. Some more plot twists here and there. They, not the best, necessarily, plot twist, but I mean, I, I appreciated the fact that they tried to give us kind of a... I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say convoluted, but a, a very... A plot that's really moving, that has a lot of moving parts. This one felt like it whipped by because it's such a basic story, but I'm okay with that because ultimately it works better for this medium, especially for so early in the series. Like, I I don't feel like Poison Pen should have been the second episode. I I just feel like there was too much going on with that episode. I think it would have been a little bit more appreciated deeper in season one or maybe even early season two. But... To, to watch Cupid's Quiver right after it, you just see the night and day of what works on a, on a horror anthology series and what doesn't. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed this one, too. I like the, the douchebag characters. I mean, it makes sense. It's a frat in the 80s. Uh, unfortunately, I was in a frat in the 80s. Viva Delta Chi. I did not know that about you, Mr. Venom. Yes, ma'am. I went to I went to the University of New Haven for my first year of college uh, out in Connecticut, and I joined Delta Chi my first semester. I ended up quitting school after my first full year. 
um, taking some time off and then finishing my degree in Pittsburgh at the Art Institute. So did you do any hazing in your fraternity? No, no, it was um, the reason that I kind of rushed this uh, fraternity and it might sound kind of lame now, but part of the reason was it was a non-alcoholic frat. So they they still had parties. They had lots of parties. I mean, we had the house was full of people every Friday and Saturday night. But it was an alcohol-free frat house. You could you could drink outside, but you couldn't drink in the house. And it was it was more of a social frat. You know what I mean? Like we weren't necessarily athletes. We weren't all in any particular field or major. But it was definitely a social frat. Like they that that, that was part of uh, what they actually called it. It was on the flag, a social frat. So um, yeah, no hazing, ma'am. I would not participate in that at any point in my life would I have enjoyed either on the receiving end or the giving end. It's just not my thing. Can I say you joined because the logo was a heart with a Cupid's arrow through it? <laughs> oh, no, no. That would have kept me away. You, you didn't get chosen to get initiated into the skulls, Venom? <laughs> no, thank God. I didn't go to Yale. What the fuck? <laughs> I was down the street from Yale. Yale is in New Haven, Connecticut. And I was at the University of New Haven, I don't know, maybe five miles down the road. So Wait, are I, the I saw. A real thing? What's that? Are the skulls a real thing? Uh, skull, it's based on skull and bones, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah, that's Yale. That's a Yale thing. Yeah, that's, I mean, like, it's like what, a what you saw in, movie, in Yale. Yeah, the movie definitely take, probably takes liberties with like how far things went. But there's definitely like high society, well-connected type things like that, yeah. Let's get into the episode. I mean, we've already given our general thoughts. Uh, anything else to say before we kind of get into our kind of mini walkthrough? Yeah, let's go for it. Yeah. All right. Our episode opens inside of a kind of a seedy bar, you know, smoky, dark, dank bar. We see an awkward kind of dorky man. His name is Gerald Hastings. He's hanging out at the bar. And suddenly he notices a beautiful woman at a table and he takes interest in her. He walks up to the table, propositions her, basically asks her if she wants to dance. Unfortunately, she's already with a guy who's right there at the table. So kudos for the balls this guy has. But obviously he's got he's got the balls because of what we're about to see. So after she turns him down, he basically has this large like satchel, like a package with him that he's just carrying around the city. And no one seems to be curious about it. But he pulls the cover off of it, and we get our first look at the statue. It, it's a very basic Cupid statue. The only major difference is that Cupid is usually cute. This particular Cupid statue is not cute because it's based on the guy who created the statue. We'll get into that in a little bit. So after she turns him down, Gerald retreats back to the bar. He unwraps his Cupid statue. He does try one more time with the woman, but again, she rejects him. This time it's out on the dance floor. And this time from across the room, we see him set up the Cupid statue so that it's pointing at the woman. And we see like a laser arrow come out of it. Obviously, this is 80 special effects. You know, we kind of talked about some of the crappy special effects in episode two last time. There's a lot less of them here. So maybe it's not as jarring as, you know, a, an axe or, or a, a guillotine head just floating around a room <laughs> taking out uh, the holy men. We see the laser come out and suddenly the woman immediately changes her mind about the guy instantly she's like she's telling the guy that she's with to shut up and leave her alone and instantly she just leaves with the guy that you know they don't dance they don't make out literally they just decide to leave instantly she asks uh can we get a motel room somewhere which kind of 
I don't know. It irks me a little bit about this because I feel like Cupid is supposed to be a representative of love. But this, I, I don't see love in this. I see lust. I see nothing but lust. Like when this Cupid statue hits someone, that woman wants to fuck the owner of the statue. I mean, yeah, she falls in <laughs> love with them, I guess, in a sense. But it's really lust more than anything. Hey, that's, and, that's the I first agree. stage of love, right? <laughs> um, you, honestly, I've I, I got to agree with you there. Well, they did meet at a bar. <laughs> exactly. It, it made me think of Love Potion number nine, if you've seen that movie. Yes, with Sandra uh, Bullock yes. and her weird teeth. We review yeah, that where she's like. like, yeah, she's not interested, and then of course here comes the potion, and I mm-hmm. want, it. yeah, I want it all, and I want it now. Yeah. All right. So after Gerald and the mysterious woman leave the bar, they go to a seedy hotel room. He ends up renting the honeymoon suite. So this thing is so cheesy: heart-shaped bed, pink neon lights. Uh, oh God, it, it is just '80s cheese personified. I love it. And while he's having sex with her, basically, he finishes. They both finish. They're kind of lying there in bed in the afterglow. Uh, During the sex, I forgot to mention, during the sex, we actually see the head of the Cupid statue turn (laughs) towards them. (laughs) Fucking pervert statue. (laughs) That's part of Cupid's agreement. He gets to watch. (laughs) He gets to watch. (laughs) I like it. So, like I said, as they kind of post, uh, as they sit there in their post-coital haze, the woman says to Gerald that she loves him. And when she actually says this, you kind of see Gerald's mood change. Like he's no longer this loving guy who wants to be with this girl. Instantly, he straddles her, he gets on top of her, and he starts to strangle her. In the process of strangling her, apparently they're making enough noise that some people out in the hall hear the commotion. They end up breaking into the room, saving the woman. The woman does not die. The guy is arrested. But what we see is one of the frat brothers looking at the Cupid statue. He's wearing a t-shirt from his frat, which has a heart with an arrow through it. So when he sees the Cupid statue, he's like, oh, this belongs at our house, at at our frat house. So he literally just takes it off a crime scene, even though, you know, Nobody was killed. It's still a crime scene that has to be investigated, and he just sneaks out of there with the statue. I believe his name was Bowser. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking frat names. (laughs) I was so confused by this scene, though. Like, what's up? Like, when when the cops just, like, burst in. It didn't... This entire scene is very confusing, because... Personally, I didn't think they were making enough noise that anybody in the hall (laughs) would hear them. And then B, if... If that woman was right, right. She was being strangled. But the point is, is that if she's in love with this guy, you know, if she's being forced to be in love with him, wouldn't she just tell the cops? Oh, no, no, no. We were just having rough sex. I like my sex rough. No, no. he, He wasn't trying to kill me. But we never hear from that woman again. So I don't, you know, so the rules are already muddy with this whole thing. Like already the rules don't make a lot of sense. But, you know, we move on from there. (laughs) So after the opening credits, we go back to Curious Goods, where we find Mickey reading about the incident in the morning paper. She remembers that there was a Cupid statue in the manifest. And Jack remembers, Jack actually remembers picking it up in Cairo. He has this long story about the person who made it. His name was Salah Malik in Italy in 1493, I believe is the year he said. And he basically tell, and I, I love how Jack knows every fucking item in this store, knows the history behind it, like without looking up a book or anything. I'm not sure if that's going to start annoying me as the series goes along, but it's kind of <laughs> cool right now. So I'm okay with it. 
But like I said, he tells the story of Salah Malik in Italy. He said that this man was so ugly that women couldn't look at him without turning away. He was so disgusted by the way that uh, uh, the women were treating him that he vowed vengeance on all beautiful women. And he had this statue of Cupid made, but he had it made in his own image. That's why this little thing is ugly as fuck. The, the face on this Cupid is like the worst Cupid face you've ever seen. It just looks awful. But that's the point. The Cupid statue, I, from what I'm figuring, I'm, I, I, my guess is that Sala, the original guy who made it, somehow fused his soul into it. Because I feel, and we'll get into it more as we go along, but I feel like this statue... Much like some of the gifts that we've already seen from Curious Goods actually has like an effect, a controlling effect or a hypnotizing effect on its victims. And uh, we'll go into that a little bit here. Like I said, Mickey's reading the article. They look it up in the manifest. They find that item 00279 was sold to someone named Frederick Mason four years earlier. But he is currently in jail as he was convicted of killing three women. So, But it's not the guy from the opening scene, because the opening scene, that was Gerald Hastings. So already we've established that this statue has had multiple owners. Now, Mickey and Ryan go back to the crime scene, to the motel room, and they pretend to be cops. Uh, like investigative cops, plainclothes, you know, detectives. They have a chat with the hotel manager, and the hotel manager lets them know, uh, oh, I do remember seeing some frat boys in here when we busted the door down. I distinctly remember seeing the Cupid statue there, but then when we came back to the room, the Cupid statue was gone. So the hotel manager says, more than likely, they have it at the frat house. Let's see, Mickey and Ryan go to the campus, and lo and behold, the very first fucking person that they interact with is our killer for the episode. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, dumb luck again. Uh, but they end up interrupting a conversation between Eddie, who is our, you know, episode villain, and uh, Laura. Is it Laura? Yeah, Lori. Lori, excuse me. So Eddie and Lori, obviously it seems like Eddie and Lori had some kind of past. Not a true relationship. Maybe they hooked up after a party or something. But Eddie obviously is harboring feelings for this woman. Uh, she obviously has no feelings for him. She's already dating someone else and just doesn't want to deal with him. But obviously, Eddie's in love and he's kind of, you know, forcing the issue. Luckily, Mickey and Ryan show up to, inter to interrupt the conversation. They ask about the fraternity and the girl tells them, oh, I'm actually walking there right now. Why don't you come with me? And then Eddie then offers them a ride in his truck. So they literally have two offers to take them to the um, to the fraternity. But they notice the look on the girl's face. The girl is obviously distraught when she's telling them, oh, no, you can walk with me. You know, I'm going there now. So Mickey and Ryan decide to go with her. They decide to walk. And she tells them, you know, a little bit about Eddie and, you know, about him badgering her to go out with him and blah, blah, blah. But she's obviously creeped out. Now, Eddie knows that the frat that they're looking of Eddie knows the frat that they're looking for. Excuse me. And he, like I said, he offers to give him a ride, but they end up walking with Lori. Eddie rushes back to the frat house while Ryan, Mickey and Lori are walking to the frat house. He jumps in his truck and rushes back there. She decides not to go in with Mickey and Ryan, obviously, just in case Eddie is still in there. Now, mind you. One thing that was established early, Eddie is not a member of this fraternity. He's not even a rush. It's not like he's trying to rush these guys. I think that's it's, one of the funniest things of the whole episode is the fact yeah, that he's like just more like a, 
I don't know if he's like an errand boy, a whipping boy, and they're just kind of stringing him along with the hope of one day joining. Because I'm like, what are you, their <laughs> personal janitor assistant or something? He's like, here, you can have a T-shirt as long as you do our laundry. <laughs> yep, exactly. And yeah, that's why he's walking around campus with that T-shirt on. So people obviously assume that he's a member of the frat. He just doesn't correct them. So like I said, Mickey and Ryan go into the frat house and they talk to the, the, the frat leader, the main guy there. And they start asking about the Cupid statue. And then instantly this guy says, are you cops? Do you have a warrant? And can I see your identification? And of course, instantly that just puts a wrench in Mickey and Ryan's plan. They end up leaving the house with their tail between their legs uh, and, you know, with nothing to show for it. Now, Jack has a plan to get them into the frat later on. He's going to play a bartender at the party while Ryan and Mickey snoop around. I forgot to mention that the frat brother did actually invite Mickey to the party that evening, kind of hitting on her. So while Jack is tending bar at this party, he decides to whip up a mixture of special punch that has sodium pentothal in it. And for anybody who doesn't know what that is, that is, of course, truth serum. When you are given sodium pentothal, you lose the ability to lie. Everything that you say that comes out of your mouth is the truth. Like you physically cannot lie. It has, it, it inhibits some part of the brain that is, you know, basically where we lie. So, so Jack spikes the punch with sodium pentothal and basically just tells Mickey and Ryan, just go, once everybody's been drinking, just go around and start asking people. I mean, they're, they're all going to feel a little lightheaded. Sodium pentothal is uh, are, uh, kind of a drug um, as far as like a hallucinogen, a very mild one, but you still feel kind of like you ate an edible, basically. After drinking some of the punch, uh, Mickey does end up asking Bowser, the guy who actually stole the Cupid statue. She ends up asking him, where have you seen a Cupid statue like this? And Bowser instantly is like, oh, yeah, I've got one in my room. And they go upstairs to look for it, but the statue is gone. And of course, where's the statue? Eddie stole it because, as Mike said earlier, Eddie is like they're, you know, they're, they're basically their maid. He cleans the house for them in the hopes of getting invited to rush the frat, but that's probably not going to happen. So, um, so like basically, off James Spader. I'll go with that. <laughs> Much ugly one, yeah. <laughs> Like, like, yeah, like the James Spader leftover parts got constructed to make another James Spader. <laughs> exactly. That, that one that's like completely inebriated or on drugs, but doesn't <laughs> apparently, even though he has a cigarette later in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I know, I think you already passed this part, but when the, uh, when he's spiking the punch, he's like, yeah, I got my homemade truth serum. It's like, wait, what? And then he's not even he just, trying to hide it. Like he's talking out loud. Like it's so funny. <laughs> well, like yeah, I think I forgot how like in various episodes, Mickey and Roby Log will show up to start the investigation, and then he'll just kind of randomly show up to help. Like whether it was solicited to him or not, he just kind of shows up. Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm here to help the investigation with my quirky ways. <laughs> Did you guys feel like, um, you know, our two main leads of the show, that they, it felt like they were um, not as in the forefront this episode as they were the last one? Uh, there's a story behind that. Oh, which, okay. uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to jump uh, ahead on you, Venom. Oh, no, no, not at all. Not at all. It's a good question. Just remember the question. Don't forget it, because I might forget it. <laughs> all right, carry okay. on. Okay. 
<laughs> All right, so after Bowser and Mickey discover that the statue is missing, we then proceed to see Eddie, who is in the process of stalking Lori. He sees Lori, you know, kissing with her boyfriend. He eventually tries to get into the party, even though he was not invited. And he ends up getting kicked out, of course. He is not invited to the party, so off he goes. And he decides to, you know, go drinking at a local bar. Guess what? Same fucking bar from the opening scene that Gerald Hastings is at. So obviously we're still in the same town. He goes to the bar and he basically goes through the same thing that Gerald went through, where he finds a woman, he talks to her, she rejects him. He tries again a second time, she rejects him a second time. And honestly, I'm wondering, how did Eddie know how the statue works? Like, do you guys think the statue might have been, like, talking to him or something? Because I would not have guessed that that's what you have to do with it, you know? I mean, if someone tells me that it's a magic statue that's going to make people fall in love with you, I would assume me just owning it is enough. But I don't know. It's weird. I, I, again, the rules of this universe escape me sometimes. Uh, you, so mean, like I, like as, oh. you mean as far as when someone takes possession of it, how they would get it to work? Yeah, like how do like you how know? would they know? There's no instruction manual. Well, like part exactly. of me thinks that like maybe the person taking ownership of it only kind of like half believes it anyway. Like, they might look at it as like, oh, he just bullshitted me. It's just oh, it's a good luck charm to help get the ladies. But I don't know if they actually believe that it's literally gonna shoot our little uh, '80s style video game <laughs> arrow I'll at somebody. That. I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll believe yeah, I, that explanation for Bowser for the first guy, <laughs> the guy who took it. But Bowser. Eddie, like when Eddie stole the statue, he stole it with intent. It's not like he was just, he's not, I mean, at least he's not set up as a kleptomaniac. So we, we, we can't go with that. He took it with a specific purpose, but it's almost right. like he didn't know what the purpose was. He just knew he had to take it. Well, my no, question, like I said, oh, go ahead. So like Eddie, no, go ahead. I, Sorry, I'm getting ahead of my No, no, no. Like I said, my major question is still just how did he know how to use this? Is the statue, like I said, my theory is that this statue is possessed by the person who created it, by Sala. And if that's the case, maybe he's actually like telepathically speaking to all the guys that steal the statue, basically giving them instructions. Because, you know, when we see Eddie use the thing for the first time, which we're about to see, he does it almost expertly. Which, right. I don't know, it like kind of freaks me out. He points and directs it, right? That's what I mean. Like, he knows yeah. how it works, yet there's, you know, there's no article in the paper that said how it works. Obviously, no one's well, going to believe that a Cupid well, statue's cursed. But, but the I, dude that was at the frat with him, um, he did say, this never used makes it. people fall in love, makes women fall in love with you, supposedly. And Right, but he didn't so, know how it worked, Bowser, because Bowser never got a chance to use it. Well, let, let's put you in that situation. Somebody said that. They're like, okay, so uh, apparently the things makes women fall in love with you. Like, what would be your go-to move with it? Like, wouldn't you just point it at the person? That- uh, let me tell you what my go-to move would not be. It would be carrying <laughs> this ugly fucking thing into a bar. That's yeah. goddamn sure. I, well, no, I was going to say. You know, you know I, what I'm saying, though. Like, this dude is obviously, like, he's delusional. Like, we can see that when he's talking to his main love interest, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, so, clearly, like, he has psychotic tendencies already. So, I don't know. I think with somebody with that type of mindset, they're like, I'm going to point this Cupid's arrow statue at you and you're going to fall in love with me. Like, I, I, I can see, like, it's an easy thing for me. I don't know. Mm. 
I don't see it. I, I don't see it remotely. <laughs> okay. I, 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 I'm serious. Like, what makes you take the statue to the fucking bar and then point it at the woman? Like I said, it, it's a little bit of it's a, it's a little bit of suspension of disbelief. I'll allow it because it's just a silly horror anthology series, but it's still a question that I have. And like I said, if you if you tell me that the statue is possessed by the creator and he's like using ESP to tell these guys what needs to be done. I can accept that. I can totally accept that. But the fact that these guys just know how the statue works, eh, I'm going to call a little bullshit on that. Well, that's all. well what that's would you do if you had the statue though? Like, that's my question here. Like I said earlier, if I had the statue, I would assume that just owning it would be enough that, you know, I, I would be more desirable to women or whatever. Oh, okay. You so know. you don't think you should have to carry it along with you? No, that thing was like a, a 30 pound brass statue. <laughs> who, who the fuck thinks of carrying that around? That doesn't make yeah, sense. I, I, I feel like it's kind of like one of those like good luck charm kind of things. So I, I can see it from that angle. I don't, I don't know. The, yeah. But my good luck charms are pocket size. Yeah. They're not 30 the, pounds. That's what he <laughs> That's. <laughs> that's that's the one thing i was thinking by the end of the episode i was, I was like you know it 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 would kind of seem weird to just like walk into places with something that size but i like overlooked it because the episode like I, I had a lot of fun with it so but i was yeah. just thinking like in real life if you apply something to that size i was like man like it'd be kind of awkward just walking into a bar with that big whole thing i don't know exactly it doesn't make sense it kind of reminded me a little bit of like leprechaun sure Okay you know, and um, like I'm obviously there's like more research done in those films with like the like there's so much lore to um, the Leprechaun in each film is different. But I, I think I'm thinking of uh, probably part three when they're in Vegas and he has to have like the medallion and you have to like know to throw it over him to turn him to stone kind of thing. Um, it, it was reminiscent of that for me. Like, I know it's completely different, but um, holidays. No, no, that's valid. Absolutely. There have been lots of movies. I mean, we could name we could each name a bunch of movies that do this where where an antagonist in the film instantly knows how to use a, a cursed or supernatural item. Yeah, there should have been though, like an encryption or something or an inscription. I, I just think <laughs> that he should have they, they could have done it in literally like a five second scene where Eddie literally looks starts looking around like he hears a voice and then he just kind of relaxes and says, OK, Almost like he's speaking to someone. Literally, that's a five-second scene that would give me a little explanation as to how he's figuring this shit out. Um, like I said, it's a minor gripe, ultimately, yeah. but it's still a gripe nonetheless. Valid. Okay. All right, so after Eddie leaves with his new girl that he just uh, entranced in the bar, they decide to go up to a place called Mason's Creek. It's kind of, you know, a make-out point, if you will, a secluded area in the woods where people, you know, can kind of go and make out and do other things. Eddie does use the statue on this girl. They end up having sex in the, the cab of his truck, which looks uncomfortable as shit, but whatever. And at, basically after the sex, she tells him, I think I love you. So I think we're starting to see what the trigger is that these, once these women tell these guys that they love him, um, he basically just goes into psycho mode. And that's exactly what we get here. But Eddie is a little bit more calculating than the guy in the cold open. If you remember, the guy in the cold open just started choking the girl as soon as she said, I love you. Eddie turns a little bit more calculating in the sense that he ends up leaving the truck, claiming that he has to go to the bathroom. And then he comes back to the truck with a bag, like a like a like a sack with something in it. Don't know what it is, but he ends up walking to the truck. Well, and you, forgot the, you forgot the honey foreplay. Oh, fuck the ah, God. <laughs> 
Because <laughs> I, I was I, like, I what? The, the, I was like, wow, you just keep a container of honey in your truck for these occasions. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so silly. Um, so I guess that's the setup that he either is a beekeeper or knows someone on campus who's a beekeeper or off campus. I don't know. Um, obviously, <laughs> he had the, to know where. Not the bees. Yeah, not this is a warning. This is a warning to ladies out there. If you're on a date and the guy breaks out a honey jar, uh, get the hell Run. out. Of there. He goes, get the Here, fuck out. I brought you something to keep you company. Yeah. <laughs> like, and but, like, you don't see like the setup of him like actually like putting like the stick up against the door. You do, you know. Yeah, I, I think he parked. I, I, next I can to tell it. you, I was not expecting this moment at all, and I fucking loved it. And yeah, me, I, mean, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta ask. So, mm-hmm. did he have a, did he have a bag of bees previously collected stashed out there, or did he, are they trying to say he literally went out there right now and collected up some bees? Nah, I, I was like, how the hell did he get a bag of bees? That's why I'm saying the the bottle of honey kind of implies that he knows someone who's a beekeeper because the the honey was it didn't have a label on it. You know, it was okay. kind of like a generic honey bottle. See, I missed the bottle of honey completely. Yeah, yeah, it was like it was during their foreplay. Stupid foreplay, but whatever. <laughs> well, it was a- yeah, it was a- after they were done having sex. Then they're kind of just hanging out, and I can't remember the dialogue. If he asked her if she likes honey, and she's like, she kind of her response was like, uh, "Yeah, I guess so." And he's like, "Here," and he puts some on his finger, and it looks like they're about to get right back into it. And then he's like, "Hold on, I gotta go pee." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, of course, he goes to, well, quote-unquote, P comes back with a bag filled with a bee's nest and literally <laughs> throws the fucking bee's nest in the truck, closes the truck door. Somehow, none of the bees escaped, but, again, suspension of disbelief, I love whatever. so fucking much. You and she know. can't just scoot <laughs> over to the driver's I, I side door and get so out. so much joy out of this scene. It was, like, everything that I was looking for in, like, 80s horror. And yeah. This scene fucking delivered for me. I'm not going to lie. No, absolutely. I'm right there with you. I I actually wish it was a little bit even more over the top with the bees. Like, I know they can't really give us the end result because it's a TV show, but it's not like they have to make it too gory. You know, just show her with a bunch of red marks all over or something just to see the aftermath would have been cool. But I do agree. Potentially the best scene of the series so far. (laughs) I don't think I can disagree with that. it, It was like reminiscent of like Sleepaway Camp and like Hello, Mary Lou. Like, I don't know. Does that make sense at all? <laughs> yeah, well, it's the kind a of thing bit, that's, yeah. like, creative, like, instead of just, instead of being an episode where every single victim gets strangled or killed the same way, they just kind of come up with, with something ridiculous, it, mm-hmm. it, but it's fun. Yeah, this is yeah, the absolutely. key scene of this episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I forgot to mention, too, that while the couple, while Eddie and the girl were having sex, that we do see the statue again turn its head to watch them in the truck. And it smiles. Yeah, it's, it fucking smiles. It God fucking damn it. Smiles. Oh, God. <laughs> like, you guys, so anyway. that's the cover art for this episode, the statue smiling, if you can. <laughs> It's right there. It's right there on IMDb. If you want to look at it, it's right there. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. Anyway, so like I said, after Eddie throws the um, bees nest into the truck, 
he closes the door. He he leans up against the passenger side door so that she can't get out. And then the other side, like I, like Lacey said, it looks like he either parked next to a tree or propped up some kind of thick branch to block the door. So either way, the girl is stuck in the in the cab. And once again, we see Eddie and the statue both kind of looking at her, watching her die. And at one point, Eddie even mouths to her, I love you, while she's being fucking killed by bees, which is kind of cruel, but whatever. Again, we see the Cupid turn its head, watch, smile, blah, blah, blah. This is the part where I start to think that there is something uh, kind of unmentioned about the relationship between Eddie and the statue, because it just seems like everything is working out too well. It's almost like the statue is really the the ringleader here, and he's just using Eddie. Because don't forget, Sala, the creator of the statue, had no luck with women. So I think he's getting off by watching these guys have sex with these women and then killing them, which is exactly what Sala wanted to do. He wanted to fuck and kill every woman that he saw. Yep. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So good. All right. So after our mysterious woman number two is now dead, they head to Eddie's creepy, quote unquote, apartment. Basically, they find out at the frat house that Eddie lives in the basement of one of the utility buildings on campus. And when they actually go and look at it, it's literally not even a room. He's literally just in the boiler room where he has like a bed and a TV and like a fridge set up for himself. So it's literally I mean, it's very Freddy Krueger just living in the boiler room. So rock on, Eddie. I forgot to mention that the the book, uh, Curious Goods, behind the scenes of the Friday the 13th series, actually does mention that, the the whole thing with the Freddy Krueger uh, reference. They actually make a Freddy Krueger reference in the book because of uh, Eddie living in a, in a boiler room. So there you go. So while Mickey and uh, Ryan are there... They are looking for the statue. Of course, the statue isn't there because Eddie is out using it currently with the mystery girl that he got from the bar. But they do find that Eddie is very obsessed with this girl, uh, Lori. He's got pictures. You know, he's got the basic serial killer stalker pictures of her, secret pictures that he took of her, with, you know, without her consent, just pasted all over the walls. So very obviously, Eddie is a very unhinged individual <laughs> uh, statue or not. I'm wondering if the statue maybe goes after guys like this specifically, like unhinged guys that would be easy to control. Maybe they're like drawn to it more so. Valid. Yeah, I'll go with that. Definitely. I like it. They basically start going on a trail looking for Eddie. They basically Jack finds out that Eddie was going to this place, Mason Creek. When he goes there, he doesn't find Eddie or the truck, but he does accidentally run into the body of the girl um, where Eddie basically just dumped her out in the woods, didn't even try to hide her or anything. Oh, I said, what a dick. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Beyond, beyond dick. So at this point, Eddie has managed to find Lori and her boyfriend having some wine alone in the woods. The boyfriend decides to go back to the frat to grab another bottle of wine. While he's away, Eddie sneaks up on Lori and scares her. And she basically tells him to go away, leave me alone, I don't want you here. Mickey and Ryan, who've been searching the woods this whole time, see Eddie hustling uh, Lori into his apartment. Ryan gives chase, and he leaves Lori in order to make a faster escape. Mickey checks on Lori while Ryan follows Eddie into his room. 
Ryan ends up knocking out Eddie with a crowbar. He grabs the Cupid statue, and they end up leaving. At this point, there's still like 15 minutes left in the episode, so I'm like, wait a minute. They already got the statue. What's going to happen now? Well, what ends up happening is uh, fucking Barney Fife, the college security guard, not his real name, of course, basically sees Mickey and Ryan with the Cupid statue, realizes that he saw that earlier at the frat house, and the frat house reported it missing. Uh, he remembers the exact description of the Cupid. It fits the statue exactly. So this police officer basically confiscates the statue, tells them he's going to take it to the police station and do some research. If he finds that Mickey and Mallory, uh, excuse, did I say Mickey and Mallory? Mickey <laughs> <Yeah>. and Ryan. <laughs> you did. You did. Basically tells Mickey and Ryan that if your story checks out and this does belong to you, you can come and pick it up in the morning. Unfortunately, Eddie ends up running into the police officer that took the statue. Now, this police officer, or campus security, I should say, I shouldn't even call him a cop, campus security, he is of the belief that Eddie is a member of that frat. Because like I said, Eddie wears that t-shirt in almost every scene in this film. He's wearing that stupid t-shirt. The security guard assumes that he's a member of the frat, so he actually gives him the statue back, uh, of course. <laughs> uh, so Eddie has the statue. He he ends he does end up getting Lori, but this part I like. We actually basically Lori and Eddie get split up. Like I said, Eddie ends up running away, leaving Lori while uh, Ryan chases him. At this point, they take Lori. You know, after they end up with the interaction with the police officer where they give the statue back, they end up taking Lori back to Curious Goods and telling her, you know, you can stay here for the night so that you're safe because statue or not, that Eddie guy is a fucking psycho. But as it turns out, while she's there at fucking Curious Goods, she ends up calling Eddie and telling him that she loves him. Yes, he already got her with the statue and we didn't see it on camera. So I kind of like this little swerve. It's a minor swerve, I know, but I kind of dig it. What do you guys think of that scene? Um, I felt like we kind of knew, though. Really? I, was, yeah. I did not know remotely. Yeah, no, because... they don't show them to... Uh-huh, go ahead. Because... When they come back, or when when they're talking to her, she was like, "No, I need to get back with Eddie." Is that did that not happen? She wanted to get back with her boyfriend, the guy that she was making out with earlier. No, the guy I'm, that she's actually with. No, I'm pretty sure she said, "I want to get back to Eddie," and they're no. like, "You need to come with me." Oh, that's later. That's after oh, it's revealed. Oh, that, oh sorry. that's after I the phone it. call. I guess yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I thought it was before. Sorry. No, no, yeah. Cause like, yeah, because I was shocked by that. Well, like when she makes the phone call and says, Eddie, I love you. I have to see you. I'm like, oh, he already got her. I like that. So there you go. So like I said, she's on the phone with him. They go back to Curious Goods. She ends up calling Eddie. She ends up sneaking out of Curious Goods in the middle of the night and goes back to Eddie's room where she turns around and we discover that it's not fucking Lori. It's Mickey. Uh, apparently Jack or either Jack or Ryan, one of them knew that she was using the phone, picked up the phone and eavesdropped. So another fucking reveal that, you know, we didn't really, that wasn't made plainly obvious to us. They end up keeping her at Curious Goods, Lori, that is, and Mickey goes there in disguise. And the scene where it ends up happening, Eddie is obviously distraught because he thought it was Lori. Um, Mickey ends up putting on like her clothes and a short blonde wig to look more like her. Obviously, Eddie is very upset about it, pissed off. Eddie decides, you know what? 
I'm going to fucking kill someone tonight. Why can't it just be you? So he literally just goes into psycho mode. Mickey starts to run away. Um, Ryan ends up walking in just as she gets away from Eddie. Unfortunately, Eddie does end up setting up the statue. And we see the laser arrow come out of the statue right towards Mickey. And instantly she turns around and talks about how much she loves him. Oh, I love this guy. No, 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 don't do this. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Ryan finally manages to break down the door. Like I said, when he gets in there, Mickey has already been hit by the arrow. She actually tells him, don't hurt him. I love him. You know, she's insisting this as she's hugging Eddie. Eddie ends up pulling out an axe while he's holding Mickey in his arms. And he's basically threatening Mickey. <laughs> uh, excuse me. He's threatening Ryan. What's that? Another great moment. <laughs> Another great moment. The axe confrontation. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what the hell possesses this guy, Eddie, to do this. But he ends up taking the axe and using it on a pipe there in the boiler room. Mind you, I said boiler room. So he cuts the pipe, and steam comes out of the pipe and hits him right in the fucking face. Steams himself. Why did he, he cut it, like, right there? It makes... <laughs> what an idiot. He steamed well, himself, exactly. No, oh, no, I, no, I gotta ask you guys. So, like, clearly, like, he had, like, a clearer complexion earlier on. Did he get stung by bees? No, that's what I was saying. He didn't... Not one bee got out of that truck. But he has, like, marks on his face. Probably because of altercations he's had with people, because um, didn't him and Ryan have a little bit of a row earlier in the but episode, like, like beef out in the woods? Beef, though. They look like bees. Oh, maybe they are. Honestly, like maybe they are. Yeah. So I'm like, clearly the bees were not his friends. Well, bees are no one's friends except bees. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just curious uh, if you guys had a take on that. That's all. Oh, Absolutely. So, like I said, after he busts that pipe open and steam ends up shooting at his own face, after checking that Mickey is still breathing and fine, Ryan chases Eddie through the rafters of this boiler room, which this fucking boiler room is gigantic to have all these rafters up there. Ryan chases Eddie through the rafters. And then this is this is where I'm going to say the episode fails me. We get this great episode with a pretty cool story and a somewhat compelling villain and then he just dies from falling. Like, that's not exciting at all to me. Onto he just a table. Granted, onto a table. Like, the other thing is flat. the fall. <laughs> yeah, the other thing is the fall doesn't look. He fell like maybe 12 to 15 feet. I mean, you're not going to die from that. The fall, to my knowledge. Um, the poison pen was so much better. <laughs> exactly. Getting thrown off the roof. Absolutely. Right. Much better. And yeah, that's our episode. Basically, um, we do obviously end up going back to Curious Goods for our end of episode joke, which I'm already getting sick of. But in this episode, Ryan is saying goodbye to Lori. Lori obviously is um, with Eddie gone now. Apparently the spell is over. The, the, the spell just stops, which, again, like I said, the rules of this Cupid are just so all over the place. Like there's no solid rules to this thing. So anyway, with Eddie gone, both Mickey and Lori come out of their trance. Ryan, like the douchebag that he is, decides to hit on Lori, actually asks her out, says, hey, we, you want to go, you know, get some dinner, watch a movie, maybe, you know, go see the stars, blah, blah, blah. And she very politely says no. And instantly I'm thinking, this girl's in fucking college. How old is Ryan? I'm not saying that Ryan is like in his 40s, but the man doesn't look like he's 24 in this episode. I mean, John D. LeMay... Let's see, how old was the actor during this episode? This would have been shot in 1987. He was born in... 
I don't know. IMDb is stupid for not telling me. <laughs> there it is. 1962. So he's 26 when this episode was shot, and he's hitting on a college co-ed. I'm sorry, but Ryan's turning into a douche before our very eyes, and I don't like it. I don't remember him being this bad, but we'll see. We'll see where the, seri where the series goes from here. But then, of course, the episode ends with him making a joke, you know, just like with the poison pen where he said, ooh, let's use the poison pen to order some takeout. Here he's like, I wonder if I could use the statue and just shoot her a little bit. And instantly I'm like, what a fucking cocksucker. He's already seen what this statue does to people, and he actually wants to voluntarily use it. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm sorry, but this guy's a dick. <laughs> uh, I really, I'm really, really hoping he has a, a character turn. Plus, he doesn't, he's not even in season three, if I remember correctly. He's only in the first two seasons. I think he makes a couple of appearances in the third season, but he's not a regular, so. Yeah, I, if memory serves me correct, they bring in like a, a a second guy and there's like a, a handful of episodes where all three of them are there, but you could tell it's because yeah. they're phasing Roby out. Exactly. Yep. Definitely. So yeah, that's uh that's our episode folks. Just another reason to hate Ryan, but a re but a definitely an upswing for the series. Like I said, like we said earlier, our first two episodes of the series had some actually like some decent gore. We get a throat slit in the first episode. We get a decapitation and a good, you know, dropping from a building in the second episode. This one is a little bit more tame with its kills. I mean, ultimately, you know, we only see what one person die. Oh no. Well, the, yeah, the girl in the cold open. So yeah. Yeah. So only the bees kill the only kill we got. It's a great kill. I just wish we would have seen a little bit more. You know, that that's just the, the gore hound in me wanting to see more. But yeah, let's get into some facts about this episode. Yes, please. If you guys remember on our first episode, we were talking about episode one and how episode one was not the first episode filmed. Episode one was the third or fourth episode filmed in the series. Now, the reason they did that, as I mentioned back then, was that they wanted these guys to have some kind of chemistry. They wanted all these characters to have chemistry for the first episode. And since they were all new actors, like, you know, John hadn't done much up to that time. I think he said he'd only been in Hollywood for like three years. Mickey or Mickey, uh, Roby hadn't done anything, uh, you know, name worthy up to that point. So, you know, these are basically unknowns that are kind of thrust into this. So I do kind of like the idea because in this episode, oh, the whole point of this story that I'm uh, retelling is basically this is the first episode that was filmed. This was the very first episode. Adam Agoyan talks a lot about how all the actors were green. They didn't really know what they were doing but that he did agree with the producer's decision to record this episode first so that they would have a little bit more chemistry for the first episode. Well, see, that's a little weird to me because uh, I was actually going to ask you guys, because there's a reference made in this episode to, um, where they talk about how they're posing as cops and they're like, well, it worked before. Well, they, they just met in the first same episode. It worked with the hotel manager. Oh, okay. I thought they were referencing something in the past that's, no, no, yeah, they, yeah, because they, because they pretended to be cops with the hotel manager too, and that worked. But then the frat guy, of course, is the one who asks for ID and a warrant. So good on him for whatever that's worth. <laughs> More than a cop. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, here it is. Yeah, the inheritance was actually the fourth episode shot in the series, which, like I said, this allowed the crew and the actors to gel, to gain a rapport with each other and to get a chance to find a routine, you know, once they actually go. So this episode is technically the pilot. 
because it was the first one shot. It was not the first episode that aired, but by definition, the first episode shot that is shown to the like the network guys, you know, trying to get, you know, a time slot and all that shit is that's considered the pilot. It's not always the first episode that airs. So there you go. A little trivia there for you. Um, this episode was shot in seven days. It was shot on 35 millimeter camera, which Adam Agoyan was very against. He didn't really want to use camera. Uh, he didn't want to use 35 millimeter film because of the short shooting schedule. He wanted to do it on video and then kind of slow it down to a, to a, the frame rate for film. For those who don't know, television is 30 frames per second, but film is 24 frames per second. That's why you get that kind of, you know, more dreamy look to a film than you would from a television series. Not so much now, because now we've got we've got like 4K and we've got um, high definition, not high definition, high frame rate. We've got like high frame rate movies, like the new Avatar movies, a high frame rate movie. So it literally looks like a fucking TV show because you're just not used to that 48 frames a second. You know, we're all used to 24. So blah, blah, blah. Um, so, like I said, uh, the show had a, uh, this episode had a seven day shoot. They had to work overnight twice during this shoot. And what's funny is that the producers of the show reassured John LeMay and Roby that this wouldn't happen again, that, you know, uh, working overnight an entire shift, you know, the amount of overtime that has to be paid. These are all union crews, blah, blah, blah. So the producers basically promised them, yeah, this won't happen again. That turned out to be a lie because as I found out from my research, almost every episode, not, almost every other episode of this series had all night shoots involved. For this episode, Adam Agoyan said that they were behind and that come three in the morning when they were supposed to wrap up and leave, they forgot that they had to film another scene that day. They couldn't shoot it the, sec uh, the next day. So they ended up, like I said, staying all night, sleeping in their, um, you know, their trailers and then just going right back to work the next day. So, yeah, that's kind of funny. They had planned on two hours of overtime on the first night, but that ended up turning into an overnight shoot. Roby talks about, you know, how overwhelming it was for her first, basically her first television series, her first episode being shot and everything involved with the filmmaking, blah, blah, blah. John LeMay, John... I, I am glad that they recorded this episode first because uh, John LeMay talks about he had no idea, no experience with television or filming or anything. He was under the impression that when you're on a TV show and you're the star, that you're basically the shit, that everything revolves around you. So for this first episode, there's stories of John LeMay being a real dick to the crew because he thought that's what was expected. He thought, I'm the star of the series. I need to be a dick. He said that the director put him in his place really, really quick and let him know that, no, that is not what's expected of you. You're not to treat people like shit. You know, this is your family. This is going to be your family for the next foreseeable future. You got to treat them right. And apparently after this episode was filmed, John never had another altercation uh, with anybody until season three, which, you know, I'm not going to tell that story now. We'll get into that later. But that's it, folks. Lacey, our guest, um, any closing comments you want to make about Cupid's quiver. Um, this was definitely a step in the right direction for me um, in terms of being Friday the 13th. Um, it, you know, like haunted object. Perfect. Um, mm -hmm. It's a haunted holiday. I, I consider Friday the 13th a holiday, as you all know. Um, oh, damn right. <laughs> you know, it's Jason's so, birthday. Of course, it's a holiday. 
Yeah, so I love that this was, you know, somewhat themed to that. Um, I love that you brought in that tidbit of knowledge of, you know, him being a uh, porn director, because there were several moments in this. I was like, God, this is very horny. Yeah, um, definitely. It, it was like the up close of the lips talking, and um, it was somewhat reminiscent <laughs> of Nine Seven Six Evil a little bit, um, yeah. like the seductiveness of it. Um, I don't know. I I just thought this episode was a lot of fun. I thought Eddie was a great um, antagonist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we we love to hate him. <laughs> I don't like. I literally love it. Um, I wish that there had been a little bit more of you know Mickey. And our other central characters that, you know, are are after it. But um, this is only the third episode, and I didn't see the first episode. I'm going to have to go back and watch that. I thought this felt so 80s. It felt so right. It felt like this is the perfect (laughs) type of, like, for for this theme uh, that they're going for, like haunted objects. You know, I got the pin in this one. I got a haunted Cupid statue in this one. I, I don't know what's coming next, and I j- I'm just very curious, and I'm excited to come back and guess whenever you guys have me. <laughs> nice. Mike, closing comments on Cupid's Quiver? Uh, yeah, I echo a lot of what Lacey said. I, I think this is kind of a best-case scenario episode where the the item in question, it's pretty easy to follow. It's not overly complicated because, you know, it is an well, not even an hour, really. It's 45, 48 minutes of television, so there's not often time to make, you know, this big, layered, overly complicated system around the object. This one was fairly simple. It's a Cupid statue, and it makes someone fall in love with uh, the person. Um, I love the fact that after that, they are compelled to kill them because since the items are cursed, it's like you have to add that little element in there. Um I agree. It's the deaths were a little less graphic, but I mean the bees has to make you laugh, right? Just the fact that they thought <laughs> they thought that randomly up for this for this episode, add in the honey to set it up, and it's just even more <laughs> ridiculous but fun. And yeah, I mean our our main antagonist is kind of an idiot, but I guess I mean if you're using a cupid statue to lure women, and you're an idiot to begin with, so. Well, um, to be fair, Mike, they do say there is a line in this episode, and he goes, it's Cupid, stupid. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> My unintentional callback. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, yeah, good episode. Um, I'm hoping more like this. I, I remember from, like, just vague memories, there's a good number of episodes that revolve around, like, trying to make the person like fall in love or lust or whatever. So um, I'm looking forward to like the other ones to see how they compare. Cause it's set a good precedent for this style. Yeah. It was kind of reminiscent of that episode of um, obviously it came much later, but tells from the crypt with Andrew McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Oh, the mummy, right? No, that one's with Anthony Michael Hall. That's Anthony Michael. Um, the one with Andrew McCarthy is I can't exactly remember like the setup, but women are like like he's a dork and like which is weird because Andrew McCarthy was kind of basically a sex symbol, right? Yep. And wasn't he uh, part of the Brat Pack? Was he officially in the Brat yes, Pack? Yes, he yeah. is. His book is called Brat Pack, I believe. Well, then I hope he's in it. <laughs> yeah, um, he, he is in um, the Tales from the Crypt episode where I believe he's he's nerdy and. Uh, I, I can't remember what it is. I think it's a potion, kind of like love potion number nine that makes women fall in love with them. 
And it's like in an apartment complex, if I'm not mistaken. Well, didn't you just watch it, Mike? You would know better than I did. It's been years for me. Yeah, I mean, you're close enough. Thanks. I I get the uh, connection for sure. Okay, cool. You're good, Lacey. Okay. (laughs) All right, folks, this is your 10-minute warning. The shop will be closing in 10 minutes. Please bring your final purchases to the front. And while we do that... I would like to both thank Miss Lacey Lou for joining us and give her an opportunity to talk about where else you can hear her. Go ahead, Lacey. Oh, God. Um, it's actually really simple. Um, under the Cut to the Chase uh, feed, um, we are available wherever podcasts pretty much are. Under that, it's a slew of shows. Not only is the main show Cut to the Chase, which our uh, top 10 uh, best and worst of 2022 will be releasing soon. We did just release an episode on the first horror film of 23, which is Megan or m 3 again. I don't know. Um, <laughs> fucking stupid, but um, yep. <laughs> uh, um, but we do we we recorded uh, all but our last three of uh, so we we still have to finish the episode. Sorry, we work forty hour jobs and it takes some time for us because Dan works at four in the morning. But we do also have other shows on the network, or at least I do. I have Skip to the Lou, which there's some really fun interviews coming out. Dave Sheridan, who played uh, Officer Doofy in the Scary Movie movies. Um, <laughs> he, he's a great time. He's amazing, very insightful, very funny, um, very charming. Um, so that's a really fun episode that will be coming out. Also, uh, The Last 20, we just recorded on an unknown hit, in my opinion, uh, 2020's Separation, or it might have been 2021. We just recorded on that for the last 20 with me and Carly Ray, And then uh, the Slumber Party Massacre is also doing a best and worst of 2022, our top 10. It's already recorded. It will be dropping. It was supposed to drop today as of this recording, but it'll drop sometime this weekend when I feel like finishing re- editing <laughs> Sorry, I'm busy. (laughs) And then also, um, on top of all that, um, I do have a new show coming out called Slash a Bit. Um, Dan bought me this book for Christmas to where it has all of the slashers in it, and they have them alphabetized in the back. So I thought it'd be a great idea, since it's my favorite genre. And a lot of the movies that are talked about in this book, I haven't fucking heard of. Kind of like your gift shop book, Venom, for this Mm -hmm. show. Um, I thought it would be a great idea for me to just kind of visit and see if I can appreciate the genre even more. So um, I believe I haven't recorded the first episode yet just because I'm trying to get all these other shows out. But the first episode, I do know the first film will be absurd. Um, So I'm very excited to embark on this journey. And this is going to be like a multi-guest type of show. So if anybody wants to guest, please hit me up. And um, I want to thank you guys for having me on again. I enjoy this. Uh, you can both hear Mr. Venom and Mike Merriman on our special Friday the 13th episode that we did last week on the final chapter. We did a commentary on it, and it was it, it's a party atmosphere. It's We are not breaking down the film by any means. Um, it's, it's just a fun time, and that's what we like to do on Friday the 13th is get, to our, get with our friends and just do a commentary on one of the films and um, provide some insight and some laughs. So. Nice. We'll see you in October for part five. Yes, yes. I've <laughs> Hell yeah. part five. <laughs> I love part five. Uh, I always have. 
I've warmed up to part five over the last 10 years or so. I, I saw that in the theater, like every other Friday the 13th movie opening night. And I walked out of the theater incredibly pissed off. I, I was just very upset. You know, the movie isn't marketed as a copycat. It was always marketed as Jason is back, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, I was young at the time. I think I was like, what, 15, 14 or 15. So obviously, I look back now and I watch the trailer for part five and it's like, well, duh, the chevrons are blue. It should be obvious that this isn't Jason. (laughs) But it wasn't obvious to 14 year old Mr. Venom back in 1984 or five, whenever the movie came out. So, yeah, I walked out incredibly pissed off at that movie. I have definitely warmed up to it. I actually like it a lot now. I I just had to get by my initial, you know ire about it for not being a a Jason movie. That brings up a big question for me because obviously, you know, I am a huge Scream fan and we just got the Scream 6 trailer, right? So I am curious. um, I'm not going to talk about the trailer because I don't want to get into it, but I am curious. What is the most pissed off as franchise fans, like of whatever franchise that you guys choose to answer for this, what is the most pissed off entry walking out of a theater for you guys? I mean, if you're talking franchise-specific, it yes. would be Friday the 13th Part 5. If you're just okay. talking any standalone movie, I have one that pissed me off <laughs> ten times more than fucking Yeah? Friday what is it? Maximum fucking overdrive. Really? <laughs> I, I hate that movie with the fiery passion of a thousand hells. <laughs> Fuck that movie. You, the reason that I hate that movie is because I fell for the marketing. If you guys remember the trailer with Stephen King talking about, I've watched all these directors make my movies, and it's about time the the man who wrote them, you know, blah blah, exactly. And then he and then he ends the trailer with, "I'm gonna scare the hell out of you." I walked out of that theater. I literally wanted to start a fire. I wanted to stab (laughs) people in the face. I was so fucking mad that he marketed this fucking comedy and that's exactly what maximum overdrive is a fucking comedy he marketed that as a horror movie anybody who's pissed off at stuff like it comes at night for its mismarketing you should fucking hate maximum overdrive as well now granted most people weren't around in 1987 that podcast now i'm an old fart so i was born in 87 that you shut up <laughs> did, did you want to kick a soda machine? I wasn't even born when they filmed or released this episode that we just covered. I I I, I, I was about to come out the next month. <laughs> <laughs> you were still baking, still was, baking in the oven. Nice. I came early. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike. Uh, you want to tell us about any shows that you got coming out or that are already out? Where can the people hear you? <laughs> well, currently it's pretty much fresh cuts. Uh, we, and I, you know, I forgot Venom. It's funny. I forgot to say it on our top 10 show, but I counted up how many episodes and we actually did 51 last year. So we must only skipped one week the whole year. That's crazy. That's amazing. You guys. Nice. Yeah. I, I think every other year we've got close to that, but yeah, man, 51. Um, so fresh cuts, the top 10 show is the latest episode out. Uh, the week before that was Megan, which was our officially our first 2023 movie and pretty much episodes come out on a weekly basis uh working on scheduling the main show and uh i was about to say crystal lake gift shop but we're actually recording it right now it's just been a while since we recorded it so i think that's it Lacey already plugged the commentary i did with her and venom and neil and who else don yeah i think that's good for now um always nice working on ideas for stuff but that's it to answer Lacey's question really quick 
are we counting remakes too, like as part of the franchise, or does it have to be? A it has part to be a part of the original saga. Oh God! Huh. Can't go with Nightmare Mike. <laughs> All right. Oh, um, while he thinks of that, can I, I, I did notice I took notes on this episode. There was just one thing that I left out. May I? Mm-hmm. Please. Yeah. Um, it was at the end of the episode um, when I think it's Ryan who was like, you know, Mickey was wearing the wig or whatever, and she got struck by the arrow and uh, <laughs> like falls in love with Eddie. And after Eddie falls off the table and dies or falls off the balcony onto the table, dies. Um, she goes, she, she like that releases her from the spell somehow because the person that captured her with the arrow, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, um, she goes, "What happened?" And he goes, <laughs> "It's a long story." And no, I literally, I, I'm literally thinking that took like three minutes. All he did was take an act, like he shot you with the arrow, took an axe, sprayed himself in the face, ran upstairs, fell off a fucking table, and now here we are. Yep. Like, it would not have been a long story. Like, You're right, sorry, this entire episode I, I doesn't this, constitute like, a long story. <laughs> like, exactly. that's what I'm saying. Like, it, it was it, it was terrible, terribly written at that point, in my opinion, but still a good time. Yeah, it goes with the character, though, because Ryan is kind of, he's turning into kind of a misogynistic douchebag. So it kind of makes sense that when a woman asks him a question, he's just like, ah, oh, too long a story. You know? <laughs> right, like, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, fuck it. You don't need to know. Ah. <laughs> uh, all right, folks, so as far as I'm concerned, the only other show uh, I need to speak about is No More Room in Hell Presents Creature Comforts. Uh, episode 14 is still our latest episode where we looked at Troll, the movie that dropped in December on Netflix from Finland. Check that episode out. Our next episode, episode 15, we're going to be looking at a film from the 50s called The Monster That Challenged the World. This is going to be a first-time watch for me. I have no idea what this movie is like. I've heard some good things, but like even my co-hosts haven't seen it. So this is going to be an experience for us. But like I said, that'll be episode 15. That'll probably be out late January, early February. Otherwise, you've heard all the other stuff that you can hear all three of us on, so please check it out. Before we go, again, I just want to thank everyone so much for joining us, and the store is officially closed. So, Mike, Lacey, thank you so much for being here, and we'll see you next time. Say goodbye to the folks. Bye. Peace. Don't take any Cupid statues from frat houses. That's just You're just asking for shit. And don't just wear a t-shirt of the band that you like. <laughs> Later on, guys.